Like some of you, I grew up in a liturgical background, so I'm familiar with the Advent table and the Advent calendars, so that was a great surprise to see that this morning. But in, indelled in my mind with the word Advent uh, is the Advent calendar, right? As a kid, you have the Advent calendar with the doors. You probably bought one for, for your child at some point, and, and you spend the month opening up these tiny little doors on this calendar, and sometimes you're excited, sometimes you're disappointed, but you spend the month looking at the big doors, right? On the ones that are on December 25th, uh, you, you're just excited to see what's going, going on, especially if it's an advent calendar that has chocolate, right, behind every door, because you know that's, that's the big piece that's coming on that day. So uh, we bought, a few years ago, we bought for, for our daughter a Lego advent calendar, because they've got everything now commercialized, and that was great because the, the last one was, the, was the, the big set with the pieces. So it was just, a, just fantastic. And the Advent calendar kind of embodies this idea of expectation and waiting. And as Anthony mentioned earlier, Advent means coming. And as I was thinking about what I wanted to share with you guys uh, today as I came over to, to speak, I wanted to know what are we waiting for? Right? Who is it that is coming? And how, how does this change my, my life? So as we are in preparation this week, uh, the second week uh, of Advent, just want us to think about who it is that's come. And we're going to take, take a little time to, to evaluate how does, how does my life and how, how is the way that I'm living my life align with who has come. So where we're going to turn for this is we're going to look at the Old Testament book of Isaiah, and we've we've already read the passage. I'm gonna I'm gonna read it uh, read it again if you you will allow me, and uh, we're gonna look at what Isaiah said because he's telling the the Israelites the the Jewish people he is making the great reveal for them. He is telling them who is going to come, how God is involved in their life, and that he had had not. Uh, not left them. Now, if you want to turn there, if you got a phone, Bible, we're, uh, we're going to go to Isaiah. Isaiah, he did his ministry and he wrote his book and he spoke for God as a prophet between the years 740 and 689 BC. The best that I could, uh, the best that I could find uh, online. And the interesting thing about his book is that the 66 chapters of Isaiah's book kind of mirrors the the entirety of the Bible. The, the first 39 chapters or so talk about, uh, about man's need and how, how man, particularly the, the chosen people, the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, how they had, had they, they tried to meet their own needs and how they had turned repeatedly away from the God who loved them and was, was trying to be with them and present with them in this world. And the latter part of Isaiah, the last, the last few chapters, talks in great detail about God's provision. How is God meeting th this need? So the context of Isaiah and, and his ministry and this book that if you choose to go through it and read, it's like a roller coaster. Uh, 200 years before Isaiah, there was a split in, in the chosen people. There was the 10 tribes of Israel, that was the northern kingdom. They split apart from the, the, the two tribes of Judah, the southern kingdom. 
And there's lots of reasons for this, but the, the bottom line is if you read through the, the book of 1st uh, and 2nd Kings, you see that that is real, and their kings were repeatedly far from God and, and, and did wickedness in the eyes of God. And Judah, who was with the line of David, the, the man after God's own heart, they, they were the ones that had some more faithfulness. Not always, but a lot of times they were, they were found more faithful. So as we get closer... The Assyrian nation was rising up, and they were violent, and they, were, uh, they, they, they had lots of conquest, and so they were expanding their territory, and they were taking over lots of the small countries and assimilating them into their, into their population. And what, what the Assyrians did is when they conquered a country or they conquered a city, they would take the people from that region, and they would spread them out within the kingdom. That way there's, there's less opportunity for revolt and, and, and an uprising. And so this had already happened to Israel. Israel had already been conquered. They had already been taken away. And now Isaiah, he's focusing his attention on the, the, the tribes of, of Judah. And in, in this book of Isaiah, there are, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of prophecies. So many so that... that that people who study the Bible now feel like Isaiah has to have been written much, much later because it's so accurate in what, what comes up. And it's just, it's a great thing. It's a great provision by God that, that there's so much evidence that, no, Isaiah did write this and he did write it uh, it's in the 700s BC that we, we can rest our faith on, on God and how he was moving in the world at this time and he knew what was, was coming up. So if you choose to open up the book of Isaiah and start reading, Isaiah is part doom and gloom, right? It's part, it's part darkness, it's part warning, it's part you have turned away from God, here's what's going to happen as a consequence, and it's also part comfort. This is the roller coaster of Isaiah. It's you've turned from me, here's what's going to happen, it's I'm going to be here for you, and I've got a plan, and I'm part of your life, even when you, even when you think darkness is going to win. And so what Isaiah was warning the people was that if they were putting their trust in alliances, or if they were putting their trust in the government, making agreements and treaties with, with other governments, then that was going to fail because they were abandoning the power of God. And so... Israel and Judah, they were, they were attempting to compromise in order to make peace. And so Israel, like I mentioned, they were taken captive in 722 B.C. And, and so Isaiah, uh, Isaiah was warning Judah about these things when you read. Here's some of the themes. The, the moral depravity of the country. Political corruption. Social injustice. Spiritual idolatry. Any of those things sound familiar for what's, what's going on in our culture and our world now? I mean, all of those, nothing new under the sun. All of those are the same things that, that we are continually warned and, and warning about. There's so much similarities to our time. See, what, what God has called bad, which is uh, the, the, which what he calls sin, which is the, the symbol, the sign, the, 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 the fruit of disconnection with God, more and more, the world is calling those things good. And just saying, I don't, I don't have to worry about being wrong because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to redefine the terms. And, and so we, as followers of God, we, we have a choice. 
Do we, do we compromise in an effort to make peace with the culture, uh, in an effort to be accepted, to be left alone? Or do we trust in the power of God, as Isaiah was, was mentioning to, to the chosen people? So we need to be reminded of the significance of Christmas. And so here it is. Here's Isaiah's great reveal. And I'm going to read through the entirety of it again. And it'll be on the screen. Maybe you have a Bible. This is chapter 9, the first seven verses of Isaiah. It says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people were walking in darkness. So now Isaiah turns to, to more prophecy. It's poetic. It's in, in its original language. It's, it's, it's great artistry. It's beauty. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and it increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so when Isaiah is writing, you see the first word in that passage is nevertheless. But nevertheless is a word of contrast. And actually, it's a little bit of an unfortunate part of our numbering scheme in the Bible that, that, that this gets broken up. Chapter 8 and this beginning of chapter 9 are kind of all one section, and they belong to, together. When you look at chapter 8, what, what Isaiah is writing to is this world of, of darkness. He's talking about people that are distressed and hungry, and they're, they're roaming famished, and they're enraged, and they're looking upward, and they're cursing God because because he seems so distant. And then they, when they look around at the world around them, all they see is, is distress and fear and darkness. And this is, this is who he's writing to. This is the population. They're being pressed in. All they see is the wickedness of the Assyrians. And they're wondering, how, how are we going to overcome this? There's no, there's no way that they could logically fight back and win against a, a giant kingdom. They were, just, they were just two little pieces of, uh, pieces of land. And so this word nevertheless, it's a contrast. It's a contrast between our way of thinking as we're living in this world and the, the actions and the behavior and the love and the provision of, of the God who is, is over everything. See, the, 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 the people who lived in Judah were feeling, feeling hopeless. And in the midst of this hopelessness, God has this message of, of hope. And so it starts off, nevertheless. And so rereading ver verse 1, there will be no more gloom 
for those who were in distress. There's the hope. There, there's going to be an end to the, this darkness, to, to this time of hopelessness that God's saying, I, I see it. I'm involved with it. I'm using it for my purpose. There's going to be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Those were part of the northern kingdoms that had already been, been, been taken captive. And their way had failed. They had been humbled. When, when the best wisdom they could come up with left, left them short, left them captive, left them away from, from their country in a land that they didn't know, among a people who, who had no lo love for them. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. That, that right there, Galilee of the nations, is so significant. This is prophecy. This is the beginning of what is coming. Okay, this gloom is going to be evaporated, and it's going to be evaporated by something that's going to come out of Galilee. This is God's great reveal. This is, this is the, the, the cloak of darkness is being pulled aside, and God's revealing the, what his plan is. And I want to share with you, because uh, I want to I make links between this Isaiah and the New Testament, so you can see, see how, how this is working. I just want to read something to you from Luke chapter 23. And this is, this is Jesus. And this is Jesus on, on trial. And, and sa says this. But they, they insisted he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee. Oh, there's a link back to exactly what Isaiah said 700 years before. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. So this is, this is a significant piece of information, not just something to breeze over. This, is, this reinforces our faith and reminds us that, that God has everything under control, that, this, that even in the gloom, even when it seems hopeless, God is working things for, for our future. Continuing in chapter, uh, excuse me, in verse 2. The people were in darkness. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now, if, you, if you're familiar with the Bible, if you take any time to read, uh, read different passages of the Bible, there is a huge uh, theme of light contrasted with darkness. In fact, this starts, page 1. When God says, let there be light in, in this universe, God's saying, I want my presence to shine and fill the entire universe. That happens, page one, and continues throughout the Bible. His presence is light. And so when you read the Bible and you read about darkness, darkness is a, is a sign for ignorance or sorrow or despair or wickedness, adversity, hopelessness and sin. Remember, sin is the product of when we are trying to make our own way, when we are trying to create our own worth and value and significance, when we're trying to build our own kingdoms apart from God. We look to lesser things. Light, the contrast. Light is truth. Light is joy. It's deliverance. It's peace. 
And in verse 2, it says the people walking in darkness have seen this great light. Hope is on the horizon. These people that feel abandoned and destitute and, and, and question and don't know where God is, they have seen the light. And so I just want to read a verse, again, making a link to the New Testament uh, from John chapter 3. This is, this is just after the, the, the popular John 3.16, for God so loved, so, so loved the world that he sent his son. And so then later Jesus says this, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Because their deeds were done apart from God, with no look to him, they were considered evil. Light versus darkness. And notice how in, in verse 2 of Isaiah, he's saying what's going to happen to these people. He says, the people walking in darkness have seen. Isaiah's writing in past tense. Because he knows if God says it, this is going to happen. So this prophetic language that he has is, is written in past tense to give even more clarity and more hope to the people who are going to read it and how this book is going to get the, the Israelites and the people of Judah through hundreds of years uh, of captivity and they're going to look to this and they're going to wait and long for this time when, when this light is going to come into to the world. So continuing in chapter 9, I'm going to read 3 through 5 all, all at once. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, just as an aside, what that's referring to, in case, in case you don't know, that's referring to uh, Gideon. And Gideon, uh, if you read the book of Judges, chapters 6, 7, and, and 8, when Gideon, he, he, was, he was fighting on behalf of Israel, and he was fight, fighting thousands and thousands and thousands of invaders. And God said, we're going to do this with just 300 people. So this is linking back to something in Israel's past, showing them how God had acted on their behalf before, how he was present in a time of darkness, how, how at a time when Gideon trusted the strength of God, God made the way. This, that was the, the contrast that would have come into their mind when they read that. You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire. See, what, what captivity is doing, what God's purpose is he's present in their distress. Just like, as, as, as another example, he's present in our distress. As we, are, as we are troubled, as we are maybe strapped financially, as we are wondering what's going to happen tomorrow, as we live in a culture of, of conflict and, and, and uncertainty, God is present in, in that distress. Don't, don't think prosperity means God's with me, and lack of prosperity means God's not with me. God is always present. He is always active. He uses all things. Nothing goes to waste in God's uh, economy. And so captivity led to the purity, pure, can't speak apparently, captivity led to the purity of desire. It led them to, instead of turn their heads down and see just gloom and darkness, instead of looking up enraged at God, it was having them look up and long for God. 
Much of the pain that they felt, much of the pain we feel in our life is us clinging to our old ways, the old desires, the old, the old ways that, that we made life work. That is in conflict with God, and it causes, causes us pain. And God, present in that, is trying to get us to let go, trying to say, trust me. Trust my power. Trust my way. My way is going to be better than your way. And so we see all these great things in, in this that have been written in the past tense, just, just as I have enlarged the nation. How that must have warmed their heart that as they're in captivity and they're no longer even a nation, that at some point in the future, God's going to enlarge the nation. He's going to make it bigger than, than it was. It's, it's going to be more active and more visible than it even was before. God has a plan. He increased their joy. So these people that are destitute and hopeless, they're going to feel joy again. They rejoice before, before you. Going down a little further, shattered the yoke that burdens them. This idea of, 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 of sin and being oppressed, being oppressed by, by actual physical captors, God was going to shatter, shatter that. This is what they had to look forward to. This was how God was going to work. This is, this is hope for them. This gets them through. And so now we get to see, how is this going to happen? Right, so these first five verses, this is darkness, light. God's present in your distress. Here's where we're going. Here's what to hope for. How is this going to happen? So who are we waiting for? What are, what are we preparing for? What well, we're just about to find out. So we go, to, we go to, to verse 6, and it says, For unto us a child is born. So this child being born, this is a reinforcement of the humanity of what God is going to do. This, this one who's coming was going, was going to be a person. who's going to walk, walk among the people. It's going to be just like everybody else in what he experiences. But then the next verse, to us, a son is given. So in this context, when we're talking about God's work, when we're talking about the son, this, this has the implication of royalty. This has the implication of the deity of God. This was going to be a son of God. And so next, we see, and he will be called now what follows, this is the throne name of this king. All of this is about royalty, about leadership, about the one that everybody is going to, to look up to. This is the role of the one that's to come. This is, the, this is who we are preparing for. This one that's going to be born, uh, a child in a manger that we're going to celebrate for the, for the month of December, that we're going to open our, our Advent doors and we're going to wait for that last one that has the baby Jesus in it. That one is born a king. And this is his throne name. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. See, it was common for kings to have a throne name. This was the idea of what, how they're going to be known, how they want people to perceive them. And I found this, exa this interesting example. There was this one Egyptian king. Okay, I don't know the name of the king. I don't think I could pronounce it anyway. Uh, but the one Egyptian king, and this was his throne name. 
mighty bull. That's an interesting way to start, right? Comparing yourself to, a, to an animal with horns. So mighty bull, one capable of planning. So apparently you could use a spreadsheet, that's good. Great in wonders, filled with truth. Son of Ray, to whom life is given. And while for, for, for a man to say that about himself, that's, that's, that's pomp and pride, and that's just kind of inflating yourself, what we're reading about the one that's, that's coming from God, this is, this is truth. Right? And we recognize, we recognize these words, right? This is, this is like the famous chorus from Handel's Messiah. Right? And, and I've been known to sit in the car and conduct the orchestra. I'm a fantastic air conductor uh, in, in the car, so not, not crazy. It's just Handel's Messiah. And we sing these words, and we just, I don't think we appreciate the significance or the, how we should be awe-inspired by this one who, who comes. And so we start off with the throne name Wonderful Counselor. So wonderful, this word that we use for everything. How's your day? Wonderful. How was the how was chicken? It was wonderful chicken. We use this so commonly that we forget that that wonderful means wonder-filled. This this person who's coming, this one who who is coming to bring hope, to bring light into the darkness is wonder-filled. It's awe-inspiring. Someone who when people see him is going to cause wonder in them. Counselor Counselor is, is one who plans, one who leads. So wonderful counselor is you're going to be awed by the works of the king. So, so think of something wonderful, right? Something awe-inspiring. Right? Me and my family, a few years ago, we went to the Grand Canyon. And I will tell you, that was probably the most awe-inspiring thing to see uh, just the, the, the handiwork of God, how things were cut out of the mountains. We've got this giant canyon, and I'm standing there, and I'm looking, and my arm around my wife, and I'm just breathless, and I, I just want to take in this view and the colors and the depth, and it was, it, it was amazing. And my daughter, who was 14 at the time, we just driven all this way. It just such a such a process to get there, and I run up to the run up to the to the fence, and and we're watching. And my daughter says, "Okay, what's next?" Okay, so it was a different experience for both of us about the the awe-inspiring work of God. What is something that is awe-inspiring to you? Now magnify it. That's how this King. That's how Jesus was to those that he walked among. Here's an example. There's lots of examples. Uh, you can read the whole New Testament for examples, but I picked this from John chapter 1. This is uh, Jesus. He's, he's choosing some of the people who were going to be his disciples. And when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, because this awed him. This act of knowing who he was, of seeing who he was into his heart without ever knowing him or laying eyes on him until that point causes Nathanael to say, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. His response to Jesus was to declare him king. 
And Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. And he then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You are going to see awe-inspiring things as following. The response to the king is humility. The response to the king is to give up the things of your life that you are, that you are, that you are clinging to and that you are hoping in, and to turn your attention to the king, to surrender your life to this one who's coming. The next throne name is Mighty God, that this one who comes is going to actually bear the, the, the image of God. And, and we know, because later Paul writes, that Jesus was the image of the invisible God. Everything we need to know about God and who he is and how he feels about us and how he sees us, we can see in the work of, of Jesus and who he is. The next throne name is Everlasting Father. Everlasting. He's in charge of time and destiny. He holds the whole workings of the universe in, in his hand. And the, the Father who oversees the source of life. And it's becoming harder as we go through these throne names to ignore the fact that, that Isaiah is saying that God is actually going to come and be among his people. That this, this kingdom that's going to come is going to be led by God himself. One of us. A son is born. The final throne name is the, the Prince of Peace. And, and we kind of cheapen the idea of peace as just this ab absence of conflict. And, and that is certainly a facet of peace, and I don't want to discount it. But peace, it, to, 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 the, to the Jewish mind, to the people reading this, would be so much more than just absence of conflict. The idea of, of shalom and completeness and wholeness. This, this royalty that was going to come was going to usher in this time of, of being complete, being whole. Uh, for them, it would have been the nation being complete. For us, it's our lives are, are complete. Our destiny is complete, where we're going. Shalom is the condition in which all things follow their destiny undisturbed. Everything, not just us. There is a, a, a restoration of the entire earth the entire world is going to experience shalom. And this is the, this is the promise of the presence of God in the midst of, of, of struggle. If you're struggling, God wants you to experience shalom. He wants you to experience this idea of, of peace, no matter what's going on in, in the world around you. This one who's coming, this one that we're supposed to humble ourselves before, is ushering in shalom. For us, that's living as we were meant to live, in the image of God, as our, as our true self, and experiencing the purpose and, and what that means for our lives. We get the opportunity to live in God's favor and experience that and, and have no condemnation before him because we are in, we are in Christ Jesus. So as we're, as we're turning our attention to the very end of this, as we're living in this week of preparation, how, how does your life align with that? Are you living with Jesus as king? 
Are you awed by what he does? Do you experience shalom or peace no matter what else is go, going on in your life? This Christmas, this time where we focus on the birth of the baby, this is the time to evaluate as we, as we renew the baby coming into the world, this baby that is meant to be king. So verse 7 of this passage, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. So Jesus has a government because a king implies that there's going to be a kingdom. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So what, what Isaiah is pointing to at the end is verse 6. Here's who's coming. Here's the king. And then verse 7. This is what it's going to look like, the kingdom, the restoration of all things. And, and Jesus established the kingdom of God. And we, we are living in that kingdom right now. Now, we're living in that kingdom in the midst of other kingdoms, some of the kingdoms we make, some of them the, the accuser and the oppressor, the enemy of God makes, because we still live in a world that, that people are choosing darkness instead, instead of light. But as the, the Advent table reminds us that we can expect Jesus to come back in his full glory and institute his kingdom fully. And it's going to be a kingdom uh, alone. And that's when we get to experience the, the vindication of our faith. That's when justice will be for all people and it will be common because it's going to be instituted by, by Jesus. So we spend December and we're celebrating Jesus' coming. We're celebrating his birth into the world. And this is an ever-present reminder of, of God's love for us, how God noticed our distress how we notice our despair as, as we were trying to make our own way. And God saying, I'm going, to take, I'm going to take the reins of this. I'm going to walk with you through this. You might have to carry a cross along with me, but I'm going to be part of this world. See, Jesus didn't stay a baby in a manger. Right? We're going to rejoice that the baby came, but that's not where Jesus Stayed. That wasn't the destiny of, the, of this, this baby born. Jesus was born to be a king. And this, this king and any king, a good king, has the well-being of his people in mind. And the subjects of the king give their allegiance and their devotion to that king. Sometimes they give their lives in battle for the king. But, again, good kings, they went into battle with their people. They fought alongside. They were there. They, they were ever-present. So this baby born was meant to be king of our lives, of our hearts, of our world. So I have two questions I'm going to leave you with today. Two questions of preparation. The first one is, where do you have Jesus in your life? Do you have Jesus in the manger every day? Do you see Jesus as the, the baby, as a child? Because that's, that's safe. Right? That's, we can control that. We can manipulate the child and, 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 and hold them and, and enjoy them smiling, but we don't have to surrender our life to a baby. Or do you have Jesus on the throne, which is where he belongs? But we're less comfortable with that because the throne is powerful. The throne means that I have to give things up. There's sacrifice involved with Jesus being on the throne. 
So what would it look like for you, uh, for, in your life, for Jesus to be king? What, what if he was king of your bank account? Or king of your time? King of your relationships? The king of your thought life? The king of how you use internet and social media? What if, what if, what if he was king of everything? Instead of compartmentalizing, I'm going to give some things to the king. I'm going to keep some things on the side. And as I said a minute ago, a king implies a kingdom. Jesus said this. This verse is not going to be on the screen, but this is from uh, the book of Matthew. And Jesus is talking to the Pharisees who thought they had it all put together. They, they were living life on their terms. They were following the God of, of their own design. And it happened to be a God that had the Pharisees up on a pedestal. So it all worked out good for them. And this is what Jesus said to them. He says, truly I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. So that the least likely people in the whole of the nation, tax collectors and prostitutes, the, the most looked down, the most scorned, they were entering the kingdom gladly and happily ahead of these Pharisees who were living life on their, their own terms. For John... The one we read about earlier, the John who prepared and made the way in the desert, proclaimed that Jesus was coming. John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. See, we, we get stuck building up our own kingdoms. We get stuck grabbing onto the things that we can control and, and surrounding our, ourselves with that. And we develop our own expectations of what life is supposed to be like and how, uh, how it's supposed to work out. And then when, when things don't work out our way, we wonder why God wasn't on board with our plan. That's because we, we're serving the wrong kingdom. And so my last question for you as we, as we live in preparation is, whose kingdom are you serving? Are you, are you serving your own interests? Or are you serving those of the king. Please pray with me.